welcome everybody to the Realizing Potential podcast. Today's episode is about caring for your people and being ambitious for your team. Super excited to have Dave Payne, who is currently the Vice President of Health, Environment and Safety for Chevron. He has been working in the oil and gas industry for 39 years. He graduated with a degree in petroleum and natural gas engineering from Penn State University in 1981 and immediately joined Getty Oil Company in Santa Maria, California. He worked in California, Trinidad and Tobago, Louisiana, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand. In 2006, he assumed the role of Vice President of Drilling and Completions for Chevron. His career has transitioned from a focus on technical issues to people and leadership development. That focus is currently being challenged by the COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent collapse in the commodity use and price. So first of all, before I pass it over to Dave to introduce himself, I want to introduce myself. My name is Laura Senior. I am your host uh, for this podcast. Delighted to be with our listeners today. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, speaking with you from a totally different side of the world where I think we may be experiencing similar things. So Yeah, we, we are... We are um, in sheltering in place here in California, and so I'm actually uh, talking to you from from my house and yep. uh, not from my office. Exactly, I am in the same position, uh, talking with you from the house. So I will use this opportunity uh, for the listeners. If you hear anything weird or uh, any dogs barking or any children, you know we're all working from home. I know that there's some difficulties around that, so. Will work around it. We are also in a in a shelter in place or a confinement situation here. Very excited that on Saturday we actually get to start leaving the house. So I'm excited about that. So so Dave, uh, going to uh, our topic today, our our podcast really focuses on bringing thought leadership uh, to our listeners. And I think it would be great. I provided a bit of an intro, but could you talk a little bit about your background and your personal journey as a leader? Sure. I'll go all the way back to, you know, I grew up as, as a, in a really small town in Pennsylvania. And my only goal in life really was to get out of that small town and go see the world. Um, got went to stumbled into petroleum engineering at Penn State and then uh, got the opportunity to go to California um, when I started my career. And, and um, Got into drilling and completions early on, and, and and really my focus was at that time was all about, you know, how do we drill wells faster, cheaper, you know, all the things that, that go with being a, a technical um, engineer and really, you know, focusing on making those things happen. And and as my career progressed and I got opportunities to go to different parts of the world, I recognized that, you know, clearly um, you can't be successful by yourself, and and so I started to learn that if I really wanted to make something happen on a drilling rig, for instance, it was going to have to be through a lot of other people. And I was going to have to help a lot of other people be successful if I wanted to achieve the goals that I had set out for myself. And so over time, as I got to more and more responsibility and got into leadership roles, I was able to take that, what I learned from, from working with individuals and groups on rigs uh, and take that more broadly to really help me develop better leadership skills and then to help other people be successful moving forward. And so, you know, I moved into uh, Vietnam was an interesting challenge. Uh, <clears throat> it was a, my first management job, but um, had a very small staff, um, three young Vietnamese engineers and myself, and that was pretty much it. 
and uh, and basically to, to bring them along and make them be successful was, was a huge learning for me. And then as my um, career expanded into bigger and bigger jobs, I took what I learned there in Vietnam and was able to uh, to, to apply that in some other places and, and got some we did some great things. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I had a you know if my career ended today. Um, I, I would leave with a, with a sense of satisfaction. That's awesome. And just, uh, I also want to mention in terms of, uh, you know, my relationship with you uh, that I didn't mention at the beginning, I, I have always considered you a mentor and somebody who is uh, very transparent and genuine in the way they go about things. So this podcast is actually pretty special to me that we get to talk about leadership together. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, Dave, because you mentioned, you know, that your career has, you know, gone through so many different things. So I'm curious, what how what, what how old were you really when you think you first had like your first quote unquote leadership role, even if it didn't have the title leader attached to it? How early in your career did that happen? So, so I think it was you know the the one where I that I think really stands out was when I was a, a drilling engineer in California, and I, I had just gone to work for Unical. Um, <clears throat> kind of long story how I got there. We won't spend time on that today, but. Um, you, you know, I, I got in this role. They gave me a, uh, a field to work on with a with a small team that that basically nobody else wanted. It was actually the Bill's Quadras field, the site of the 1969 oil spill um, in, in Santa Barbara Channel. And um, very old field, very old uh, equipment. Really, not a lot could be to be done there. And um, you know, I got to working with that team, and, and I wasn't in a leadership role. I was just a drilling engineer. But I got to talking to to the reservoir engineer, and he said, "You know, I've been trying to get the, somebody to drill a horizontal well out here. I think there's something in that." And uh, I said, "Well, let's see if we can get make that happen." Well, we eventually ended up drilling some world record um, long reach horizontal wells. We drilled the first case hole multilateral well in industry, um, and drilled a number of those multilateral wells. And and it was done with a really small team, um, without a lot of direction from the company. And and so I, I, I kind of assumed the role of the leader of that team, but as a leader in a group of peers, and and that's where I really you know got to understand how you know helping other people be successful, being ambitious for the team as opposed to being ambitious for yourself could really drive uh, really could drive performance in, in ways that that you can't do if you're just trying to make yourself get ahead and you're not worried about other people. Okay, thank you for sharing that. And so if you were if you were to think of yourself as the kind of leader who you were then and the kind of leader who you are now uh, within your career, what do you think is the biggest difference between the leader you were then and uh, not knowing everything you know now and the leader you are now for your people? <laughs> well, I can tell you I'm definitely a lot more polished than I was back then. I was pretty hard on people and pretty rough. Um, back back then, I didn't have a lot of tolerance for um, people who I didn't feel like were delivering at the level I thought they could. And so I've learned that different people deliver at different speeds at different rates, have different talents, and you have to recognize and respect that. Um, uh, <laughs> I was I was pretty hard on 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 folks back then. But, uh, you know, I, I've also learned to be a lot more patient. I think the, the biggest problem I had early in my career, probably early in my life, general was just this lack of patience in a hurry to get places, a hurry to get things done. 
and, and recognizing that, that sometimes if you take the time to engage others, you take the time to bring people along who might not be able to um, see the picture as fast as you can or, or might have some different perspectives, um, taking the time to get those folks engaged and being patient to let that happen is, is going to give you a better outcome in the long run. Um, I think that's a, you know, I still work on patients today. That's been the biggest thing for me is, is really recognizing you, you, you have to bring other people along and that takes time. Yes. So I can actually totally relate to that because as you know, I have a very similar personality cell than, than you have. And it's interesting how one of the things that I need to continuously work on to this day, uh, even, you know, after working with many different people and many different teams is the inclusion part of it. So it actually takes a deliberate effort or intentional effort for me to be inclusive because it sometimes could feel like, you know, people are not keeping up with the pace uh, but that pace may just be in your head. So, so you know, I, I can very much relate to to where where you're coming from on that, and the impatience being something that is just a continuous work in progress. And, and what I've learned with it, the more patient I am, the more successful I have been. Um, and I, I, I know I mentioned Vietnam. I, you know, I had those three young Vietnamese engineers that worked for me, and and you know, I had a lot more experience in them. I had more experience twice as much experience as all of them put together. But <clears throat> when they would come in and ask me questions, I never gave them an answer to the point where they started to make a joke of it um, because they would come in and say, hey, what, what should we do about this? And I go, well, I, you know, I don't know. What do you think? And, and it was every time, you, you know, you give me what you think. And then we'll then through a series of probing questions will help you get to the right answer. That takes time, right? It's a lot easier just to say, well, we should just do this, go do this and everything will be fine. Because I could have answered all of their questions in that way, and they would not have ended up being as successful as they ended up being. So, I so I'm, I'm interested to hear from you, Dave. So you took that determination to do that, even though it does not come naturally to you to ask for that involvement, and you know to have to uh, maybe let people answer questions that you already have an answer to. So what drives that passion on your side for, for developing people and for seeing them progress or realize their potential? So, so I have to give credit um, to, my, to my parents. My, both my parents were teachers um, and they were beyond being just teachers. And I say just teachers, nobody's just a teacher, but um, they uh, were so committed to helping other people. Um, as long as you were willing to put in the work, they would stay with you through thick and thin and they created opportunity for other people, but they also insisted that you do the work. And I watched them do this with a whole variety of folks, some family, some, um, some just acquaintances, people they met through the church or met through, through university or that my mom had met at school. Um, and they would, they would just help them move, move their life forward and achieve their goals, but they had to do the work. And so I think, some of this effort I made in Vietnam was a little bit in, in that vein where you say, look, I'll, I'm going to help you be successful, but you're going to have to do the work. Okay. And I, you know, hearing you say that though, I think that goes back to the topic of our podcast about, you said that when I asked you if you would do this and what you would like to talk about, you said, you know, that caring for your people and being, ambitious for the team 
was really um, what you wanted to talk about and what you wanted to share uh, with our listeners about being a leader and what you're passionate about as a leader. So uh, thanks for sharing that. That's uh, that's really interesting. So, well, and, and if I can interrupt, I will say yeah. that I don't think you could do the things that I described in Vietnam if you don't care about those people, right? Yeah. So if you if you don't really care about them being successful, it's much easier to just tell them what to do. And, and they would have been quite happy to do that. Um, so, um, you know, just the, the culture there was such that, you know, the boss said, we got to go do something, we'll go do it. So it would have been much easier for me, but but they would not have been successful. And so caring about them and caring about their ability to move their careers forward and develop um, allowed me to, to then challenge some of my natural tendencies, which would have been to move things forward faster. Probably if we went and asked those three engineers today uh, what they got out of that experience, they will probably still remember it, I would bet. Whereas if you maybe would have taken the approach of just telling them what to do, it was, just would have been one more person that told them what to do. It's just, it's just a guess. But I think that you know, when you care about people as a leader, uh, you know, people really, really appreciate it. And you never know how much impact you're having by showing that care for people and concern. No, it's absolutely true. And I stay in touch with those three engineers. I left Vietnam in 2002 and I still stay in contact with all three of them. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so I'd like to ask you, Dave, in terms of the elements of caring about your people, being ambitious for your team, we've talked a little bit about uh, caring about your people. Why do you actually believe that these elements are key to serving your team as a leader? Why do you think that they are so fundamental in being a successful leader? Well, so we talk about teams a lot and we talk about how, you know, we need strong teams to move forward. And, you know, to kind of look at a sports analogy, you know, the teams that are, that may not have as much talent, but are working as a team will almost always come out ahead of a team that has a tremendous amount of talent, but they're not connected in there. They've got individual goals that, that they place above the team goals. And, and I, you know, I saw that when I was the, the drilling manager in Thailand, you know, the, that drilling operation in Thailand was the most efficient drilling operation in the history of oil and gas. And, if, you know, if you walked around my team, there was nobody in that, in that team that you would say was the, the best in the industry at anything. And, and yet they worked so well together. Everybody knew their role. They were all focused on similar goals and they were all trying to help each other be successful in, in a way that it just it was an amazing thing to watch. And, and I, you know, I kind of understood this ambition, be ambitious for your team um, concept prior to that, but it really came home to me in Thailand where I watched every single person really focusing on <clears throat> delivering the team goals, not their it's okay. Need to get some water. Okay. The older you get, the less you can talk without having to, to <laughs> relubricate your throat. So you were talking about the team in Thailand for for the listeners. If they're in a leadership position, be it you know starting early on or in a more senior leadership position in their in their life, 
what would be some of the tips that you would give someone to create that kind of team environment that you just described? Because that, that's pretty hard. So you're talking about having people that maybe are not, like you said, individual star performers, but as a team, they're super high performers and they can, you know, outperform uh, any other team that, you know, has the individual stars. What, what do you, from, from, a, from a leadership standpoint, what do you think are some of the tips that you would give people to be able to create that environment where you can get those results? Yeah, so I think there's a series of things. One is, is laying out expectations and, and not just expectations for what your business plan is, right? It's expectations for this is how we, this is how we behave. This is how we interact. Um, I, I created rules of engagement for the team. We, we posted them all over the walls in, in the office over there. They're actually still up in the walls, uh, on the walls in Thailand today. Um, and, and, you know, it really set the tone for this is this is the way we interact. This is how we this is how we deal with each other. But then you also um, need to empower people. So you you just give give authority to as low a level in the organization as you possibly can because people get they get excited about having the ability to make decisions and then seeing the impact of the decisions that they make. Um, you know, one of the things that was, it used to bother the the the. the some of the uh, service companies, they would bring their vice presidents and stuff in and they'd want time with you as a division development manager. And, and invariably, I just tell them, look, you know, if you're in charge of, you know, if you're a vice president of, of directional drilling for, for company X, um, I'll, I'll be happy to meet with you, but I'll, I'm, I want to meet with you when you're in the meeting that you're going to set up with the engineer who makes the decisions around that. And it kind of stuck, it would set them back a little bit, but they, you know, just say, look, I don't make decisions in that space. So don't come, there's no need to come glad hand and sell me. This person is empowered to make these, these decisions. And so that's the person you need to go see. That's a really empowering thing for folks. And then you also have to provide cover when they make um, the wrong decision. Uh, we had a great story I like to share it all the time. We had an engineer that we hired from outside the company, brought him in, put him in charge of cementing. He uh, ordered some new float equipment um, and the, it, it went terribly wrong. And one thing about Thailand is, you, you know, you never just mess up one well. Uh, you'll end up messing up 30 or 40 wells before you can make it all stop just because of the way the machine works. And so he got himself in a really bad bind. And, um, you know, our, our response to that was, hey, you made this decision. You need to get this fixed as fast as you can. And, um, and, and then moved on, right? And so he did that. He had to fly in some new equipment. We had to go, uh, we had to redirect a lot of uh, things re very, very quickly, but he resolved that problem. And, and we didn't need her to go and, well, we'll never have that problem again. Let's raise the decision up a level in the organization because we could have just as easily made the same bad decision. So he walked away feeling really empowered even after a failure. I think what you just said there, if you don't mind me anchoring on that for a second, that is so huge that I would just like us to kind of take a moment to just uh, hone in on that for a second, because I think that goes to the whole concept that is very much in the in the media and when you speak about psychological safety and one of the key things being how do you provide a safe space for people that they know they can they can make a mistake because we are human and we make errors. But a lot of times, uh, just human nature, you know, we want to find who is responsible instead of, well, anybody could have made this mistake, anybody could have failed. And how is that person or not just that person, the organization, the culture of the organization going to feel 
the way that that situation gets handled will have an impact on all of that. So I think it's very interesting that when you said uh, that not only did you take the decision, you, did you not take the decision rights away from that person, you also didn't make them feel like their failure was going to be punished, just that they would have to help with the solution, correct? Absolutely. And, and so recently in Chevron, we've actually split definitions now and we, because people talk about accountability all the time. And, and oftentimes when they talk about accountability, what they mean is we want to, we want you to be accountable for your failures through being punished when that's actually culpability. And so we use the term culpability when we talk mm-hmm. about looking backward and, and punishing and accountability really is about recognizing that, that things didn't go the way you planned and being accountable to step up and be part of the solution. And, and if you really want to be the best at, at anything, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, if you're playing sports, if you're in oil and gas, or if you're in the tech industry, if you want to be the best, you're going to have to try some things that other people haven't tried. If you only do what you know will work, what others have proven to work, you will always be in the middle of the pack at best. And so we were in a position in Thailand in particular where we just we we were so focused on continuing to improve. We we're always trying new things and you had to be willing to fail. And, and one of my mantras has always been, you know, don't be afraid to fail. But people yeah. will yeah. they will not follow that without that psychological safety, without that that clarity that their that their management team and their leaders are going to be there for them when they stumble. And, and so it was really important that we very visibly do that. Um, and, and look, that doesn't come with a complete license to do whatever you want, right? You no. have to still go through the right processes. You have to, you know, do your risk assessments, and you have to do. You have to be very thoughtful. And so just 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 being, you know, going out and, and willy nilly doing whatever you want, we'll we're more than happy to create culpability in that space. But where people are doing it with positive intent, which is ninety nine point nine percent of the time. We need to create that that psychological safety for them to be able to fail. So if you think about it from from what you're saying, um, if you think about caring for your people and being ambitious for your team, you have to create that safe space, right? Because if, you, if you're being ambitious for your team, that means at some point you are going to let them fail. From, but like you said, with all the uh, the caveats or the... Uh, or the um, understanding around that but if you're doing both of those things you know that's where you really do take a different approach to how you let people innovate and make decisions so i really appreciate that so i i don't know if you're going to kill me for asking you this question but i do want to ask uh what do you think is the hardest challenge you have had to personally overcome as a leader so i think it's listening you know, I, I and I still struggle with that today. Um, you know, I, I I run about 900 miles an hour in my head, and um, it's it's really hard sometimes to slow that down. Um, I, it's not uncommon for me to be in a discussion where someone's talking about something and they either used more words than I felt was necessary, or they're on a topic that I kind of lost interest in and, and suddenly I, I realized that I have no idea what happened in the last five minutes of the discussion. And so it you know being a being an active conscious listener is a real struggle for me because um, if you don't listen actively and if you don't really work hard to try to understand what people are telling you, 
you may not understand what's really going on with that individual, right? Just be, what people actually say in words is not always the message they're trying to deliver. And so being open to hearing other messages it has been a struggle for me because I, you know, early in my career, it's like whatever you said, it's at face value, um, very little emotional um, intelligence. It's just like just move forward. And I, I offended a lot of people early in my career because of that. And so I've, I've learned it to, to get better at that. I still have my challenges. I, I don't think I'll ever master that completely, but I recognize that's the biggest issue for me. I and believe from if you're 9,000 miles away, the chance of murder happening today. Yeah. So actually, uh, I believe from having worked with you that you are very self-aware about this. So maybe like you said, it's a challenge, but it's something that you're working on continuously, probably. Yeah. And, and what I find is that if I get fatigued um, or if I'm under a lot of stress, it's very easy to revert back to where I was early yeah, I think that uh, most of us can relate to that. You know, with a lot of stress, uh, you're not getting enough sleep, or even when you're hungry, and there's all these different things that we have to manage from a biological standpoint to let us be the best version of ourselves for other people. So I'm a big, big believer in that. So, uh, Dave, I wanted to ask you to to give a little bit of a background on your position at Chevron. I think especially for people who are maybe not in oil and gas or people who are uh, not uh, in health, environment, and safety. Can you tell us a little bit about your role? Because I think it, it would be very interesting for people to know, you know, what you do, uh, knowing where you come from, that has come through the stories, and where you have been in your career. Yeah. So the the current role is basically the is supporting the the health, environment, and safety professionals in the in the organization. Um, I, I came into the role two years ago. Um, had the the honor of, of really stepping into a tradition with Chevron that is fairly remarkable. Um, Chevron is the gold standard for for safety in in not just the oil and gas industry, but all industries. Um, you know, people think about oil and gas who are not familiar with it as a very dangerous industry, but the reality of it is, if um, based on um, OSHA statistics in the U.S. at least, um, oil and gas is safer than retail. And so, you know, what that means is you're actually safer working on a, one of Chevron's drilling rigs in the Permian than you would be working at, at a place like, you know, Home Depot or, or in a grocery store. And so it's, it's really, um, it's been a remarkable journey for the industry, but it's also been a remarkable journey for Chevron. And so, so my role is to, is to really help facilitate continuous improvement in that area, make sure we have the right people and processes in place to, to deliver um, that that excellence and continue to deliver that excellence because um, it, it, the risk is there every day. The risk hasn't gone away. We just learned how to manage it uh, in ways that, that allow people to come to work safely. And so I'm really proud of what our people do. We have some more work to do in the health and environment space. So we, you know, those those two areas tend to take a little bit of a backseat to, to personal safety because personal safety is so in your face. Um, health and environment tend to be a little more um, longer term. But uh, we're also working on how we ensure that the, that the work that we do to provide energy to, to the world to, it does not impact negatively the environment. It also allows the people that work for us in the communities in which we work to maintain uh, healthy lifestyles as well. So. 
Thanks, Dave. I think it was important just to describe that because I think some people just may not have that background or context. And I think your your role is pretty uh, fascinating and the impact that you can have on so many people uh, from the position that you're in. So I wanted to, to create that awareness. So I do have one request that somebody that has worked with you before asked me to ask you, which was to describe the response to one of your team members when you told them, when they told you, sorry, that they wanted to be a great follower. Yeah, and so I was, I was uh, doing a mutual expectations um, conversation with, a, with an individual who had recently come to work as a direct report. And, and at the, at the end of that, you know, it's like, well, is there anything else you want to say? And he said, look, I, I just, you know, I, I, I respect you as a leader and I really, I just want to really be a great follower. And, and my response was, you know, I really don't need followers. What I need is partners. And I think that really goes back to this being ambitious for your team. If you need to be the boss, if you need to be the leader, um, that's going to get in the way of, of really building a strong team. But what, what, I want to do is partner with the folks that on the org chart appear to be doing my bidding, but I want, I want to be doing their bidding. I want to be helping them be successful at doing what the company has asked them to do and, and be a partner in, in this journey that we're on, which is really uh, it's a journey that will never end, which is for in the new, in the role I'm in currently is, is making sure that everyone goes home safely. Thanks, Dave. I, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I actually have a hard time when people say working for someone. Uh, I mean, because the people that I work with, I cannot even say this person works for me. I always have to say they work with me because I just do not even feel comfortable with that wording. So very aligned with you when it comes to the perspective on, on partnership. I just think it's so powerful when people can work for the success of each other and work towards that common goal instead of a more uh, traditional kind of hierarchy where you know one person's in control uh, although we're, we're not really in control but you know i think that's yeah. even when people think they're in control they're not in control but but I, i'm with you 100 percent i i when people ask me what i do i i the way i word it always is i support the best hes organization on the planet and um it is that is what I do is I, I support them. They don't work for me. Exactly. It, exactly. So I know this is a, a little bit on a different topic, but I also wanted, uh, you know, for the listeners, because I think some people have maybe a different perspective on this. Uh, as a woman in leadership, I know that a lot of people have the perception that there isn't a lot of women in oil and gas. And I have personally seen you help develop and foster that diversity within the organizations you were in. And I was wondering if you could take a, a little bit of time to just share your thoughts on that. Well, so, I, so I'll go all the way back. I grew up in a, in a house with four sisters and, and watched my dad actually um, do some things that most men in the 60s would not have done to allow my mother to be successful in a career of her own. And when I got into oil and gas, it became really apparent that there aren't a lot of women in oil and gas. Um, so it is a um, very much a male-dominated field. Um, in the U.S., it's pretty much a white male-dominated field. And so, I, you know, from the early on in my career, I was trying to figure out how you could get more women into oil and gas. 
Um, when I was in, in Thailand, I was pretty proud of the outcomes there. We ended up, um, before Chevron bought Unical, we ended up with more female drilling engineers in Thailand than the whole rest of Unical put together. And, and so my, my journey has been trying to figure out how to create opportunity for women to be successful, start mostly in drilling and completion, but primarily in oil and gas as well. Um, and, and, I, and I've learned a lot on that journey. You know, the first, early on, it was all about the numbers and it was about teaching women how to navigate men and, you know, how do you deal with this male-dominated uh, business and what are, what are the, the things that you have to do as a woman to be successful? And, and I've really transitioned in the last five or, so, five or so years into recognizing that if we really want to be successful as an industry, we all have to change. We all have a role to play. Uh, men have a very, very significant role to play in making the workplace much more open to women. Um, and so it, it goes both ways. It's not, you know, it's not for men to do, all, to do to make all the changes. It's not for women to adapt to the men. It's for all of us to do both of those things. And, and I, I think we'll be successful. I've seen a, a, a significant increase in the number of women. I think we still have a long way to go. Um, the numbers bear that out if you, you know, from an industry perspective. But you know, I, I want to be on the cutting edge of making that possible. Awesome. And uh, I'm glad you shared that because, again, I think that for a lot of people, that would be something a little bit unexpected. And I know how committed you have been to that and being a, a huge champion for, for diversity over the years. So just a couple of uh, final questions uh, that I think we'd love to get your reflections on. I know we spoke uh, a little while back that you had recently uh, read a book around givers and takers and matchers. I believe the author's name is Adam Grant, seem to recall. So I was, yeah, so I was wondering if, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what kind of leader do you, self, do you see yourself being in terms of a, a giver, a taker, a matcher? Because it's pretty easy to get uh, these concepts. And what are your thoughts on where you think people can be most effective within this spectrum of givers, takers, and matchers? Yeah, so it, it's a really interesting book, and I wish I'd have been able to read it about 20 years ago. But, um, you know, the, the concept of givers, takers, and matchers, I think, is a, is a pretty simple one to get your head around. Um, takers are people who are always looking for, to get things from other people. Um, matchers are looking for a kind of a tit-for-tat. And givers are people who will give um, almost without uh, without concern for any anything coming back their way. Um, and and the concept of the book is really that that givers with ambition are can be are the most successful. And and the reason for that is because they uh, people will then give back to them at times when they don't expect it. And um, and I think that's that's really kind of the way I've done things my whole career is is try to help other people and and if, if somebody comes and asks for help I'll give them help whether it's something in it for me or not um it's something I watch my parents do um you know and, and my I actually watch my parents sometimes give to to their detriment and sometimes that can be a problem and they're in the book it talks about how if you're if you're if you're a giver to the point where you get taken advantage of then that it has a, a detrimental effect as opposed to a beneficial effect so so there's some trade-offs in that space, but um, you know, I, I I think being a giver is a it's a that's where I want to be. Um, even if it had not the, uh, hadn't 
gotten me where I am in my career. Um, you know, so early on in my career, I was helped. I helped a lot of people, and I'm, I'm happy I did that. Uh, I, I think that's it's rewarding when um, you know. My view is someday I'll be sitting uh, sitting in a rocking chair somewhere, and and the memories that I have will be of those three Vietnamese engineers in um, in Thailand or in sorry in, in Vietnam, and not of uh, of what my titles were in, at the end of my career. Fully, fully aligned, and I think again we go back to creating experiences with for people, uh, creating experiences that you're a part of, and that you know you can take away those feelings with you well beyond titles. I think titles at a certain point actually start losing quite a bit of relevance in terms of what what you take with you and and your legacy. So I do have to ask one more question because, as you know, we uh, we have been working uh, for a long time with uh, personality styles. And before I ask you for your final refre- reflections and key actions for our listeners that you would recommend in order for them to care for the people and be ambitious for the team, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what you have got out of being exposed to and working with the eColors, our personality diversity tool. Oh, <laughs> Laura, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah, so I just like some highlight points would be great because yeah. I don't want to lose the opportunity for someone that has been through so much in their careers. You have to, you know, work with our tool to just kind of say just a few things of what are the things that you have got out of working with personality diversity and the e-colors. Well, I'll give you two points. One is it's helped me understand myself better. I think that's one of the most powerful uses for the tool. Um, we talk about how using it to help communicate with others and all that, but the reality of it is the better you can understand yourself and the better you can understand your potential limiters, the more likely you are to be successful. So, so that's been really useful for me. The other is actually quite personal. Um, you know, I'm red, yellow. My wife is blue, green. Um, when I understood that she was blue green after she took the uh, the personality indicator um, I it changed the way I thought about her I and mean, this is a terrible thing to say actually but it, it helped me understand her more that some things that really frustrated me and it's like why did she do that now I recognize that's just who she is right and it's a little disappointing that you couldn't get there without knowing her, the personality indicator but you know um it really opens up your eyes a little bit and and you know i think our relationship's been better since then so so that that for me is a big win oh absolutely uh, we actually did a webinar the other day for for families and what i mentioned to people is don't feel bad if you assume certain things about the people that you live with and that you love about their personality and then you find out oh wow i didn't really realize that sometimes we can be extremely close to someone and not know what their natural tendencies are or where they're coming from. So I think there's there's absolutely no guilt in that for sure. So thanks for thanks for sharing that. So that what we would uh, what I would like to to suggest that we close with uh, for people to be able to take away maybe some actions or suggested actions from your side that you think they could go and try out. Uh, to show care for their teams and to be ambitious for their teams as leaders, what are some of the actions that you think people could go and just test? Well, I'll tell you, the, the number one thing you could do today in, in this environment that we're in with the COVID-19 and all of the, the uh, shelter in place and restrictions and people working remotely is just go ask your people how they're doing and, and then listen. Don't try to solve their problems. Just hear, let them talk. 
um, what we're finding is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of stress in the system. A lot of people are uncomfortable. There's a lot, tons of uncertainty. Um, some people just can't wait to get back to work. Some people are perfectly happy working remotely. Um, there, there, there's a lot of challenges there. And so just simply go in and ask and, and see how they're doing. Um, the other thing for me is, is, you know, asking your people, what can I do for you? And I'm, I try to get in the habit of, of every conversation I have with one of my directs is say, hey, you know, is there anything you need from me? What can I do to, to help you uh, get this project done more successfully? Um, really put yourself out there and, and stay humble. Uh, don't don't just direct people on what to do. Let them tell you what they need. So I think those two things are very simple to grasp and something that people could go and try out immediately. I do think, like you said, this asking how people are doing right now and just having that personal moment to check in uh, from all the people that we're working with and, and coaching remotely, I could not encourage that more. Uh, because sometimes, you know, people... They are locked with certain people in the house, the family, et cetera. And just knowing that somebody that they work with cares about them could make a huge difference that day. So very much reinforce that. Dave, any final reflections before we say goodbye to our listeners? Well, just the, uh, the only thing I would say is, you know, we're all on a journey. We're all learning new and different things. And, and, um, None of us are none of us are a finished product, and, and I just encourage people to to use podcasts like this and different uh, different avenues to learn about other people's journeys and try to really understand um, how you can how you can improve yourself. But, you know, focusing on self improvement I think is a really big big deal, and so I just encourage people to, to use these tools and 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 see what you can do to get better. And I'm open to feedback. If there's things you heard from me today that you, you want to challenge, I'd, I'd be happy to hear about. It. Awesome. Always up for a challenge. So thank you very, very much, Dave, for your time. We know you're extremely busy, uh, even you know right now, especially with your role in this current uh, pandemic. So we couldn't thank you enough for your time. And thank you to all the listeners for taking the time to listen to our Realizing Potential podcast and to learn a little bit more about Dave Payne and his lessons in leadership. We really appreciate your time and looking forward to the next one. Thank you for having me, Laura. Thank you.